Okay, today is the uh, the last Karsha class before Shavuos. And also it's the beginning of a new book of the Torah, the book of Bamidbor. Um, just to let you know, next Tuesday there'll be no class. Okay, um, and we will resume the Parsha class the following Tuesday. Right there after Shavuos, day before my daughter's wedding. It's going to be a little bit uh, tricky for all that. The Thursday class is on this Thursday, next Thursday. The Thursday class is good all the way through till the, till we get to the summer break. So again, no class next Tuesday. Okay. We're starting the book of Bamidbor. Things have been pretty exciting till now. And, uh, Parsha's Bamidbor, specifically this Parsha, is not what we would call the most exciting Parsha because it deals with a lot of technical details as it were now but before but and the general theme of this book the book of Bamidbor deals with the travels of the Jewish people in the desert and what happened to them in the desert so the first thing I want to do just uh, you know as I say extra you know no extra charge for the price of admission if you look on your uh, sheet over here we have the relevant dates in the first year of the Jewish people's existence. And it's important to know them. A Jew should really, you should really commit it to memory because it's part of what being a Jew is all about. And it really tells you how to understand all the holidays of the year and how they come into the cycle of the calendar. So just very briefly, the Jewish people, the first important date is the 15th day of Nisan in the year 2448. That's when the Jewish people had the exodus from uh, Egypt. And that's when we had the first counting of the Jewish people. So that's an important date to know. The 15th of Nisan is when Pesach is. That's when the Jews went out. Okay, then we move on to the 7th of Sivan, or for that matter, the 6th of Sivan, depending on what you hold like. But the 7th, so we have Nisan, Eir, Sivan. 49 days later, the Jewish people received the Torah at Sinai, and that's the holiday of Shavuos that's coming up this weekend. 40 days later, the people sinned with the golden calf, that's on the 17th of Tammuz. And that begins the three weeks. The three weeks of sadness in the Jewish calendar. And that culminated, and I didn't put it in. I don't know why I didn't put it in. I should have put in, in the middle of there, Tisha B'Av, which was three weeks later, although not historically. It was a year later. Oh, no, I don't have it. I have to have it later. We'll see. Tisha B'Av fits in a little bit later. Okay, number four. So that first year, the Jews are through the desert. Uh, now Moshe has to go back to the mountain a few times to get forgiveness for the Jews. And then on the first of El, he makes his third ascent to the mountain to get the second tablets. And that's Rosh Chodesh El. And El is beginning of Tshuva, three days before Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. Forty days later, he came back, which coincides with the 10th of Tishrei, with the second tablets, and that's Yom Kippur. Then, for uh, next day, he came back with instructions to build the Mishkan, and the construction began on the 15th day of Tishrei, five days later, and that coincides with the holiday of Sukkot, and it's also the second counting of the Jewish people. Well, the construction of Mishkan finished on the 25th day of Kislev, just a couple months later, although it wasn't uh, erected yet, God wanted to delay that, but it will in the future become the holiday of Hanukkah which coincides with the completion of the tabernacle, though we did not erect it yet. On the first of Nisan, finally we erect and dedicate the Mishkan. 
And now we're coming full circle. The first day of Iyar, one year and two weeks after the exodus from Egypt, we now have the third counting of the Jewish people, and that puts us right in Parshas Bamidbor right here. So we've basically reviewed the book of Shmos. In these little eight holidays reviews the book of Shmos. Now, what's missing? What's missing is Tisha B'Av. That's not in there because we haven't gotten there in the storyline of the Torah. That's going to come about three or four parshas from now, Parsha Shlach. Now we're in the first of Er. You've got to go Er, Er, Sivan, Tammuz Av. Three months later, on the ninth of Av, the Jewish sinned with the sin of the spies. And that's Tisha B'Av. And that closes the whole circle of the Jewish calendar. Okay, Purim's not in there. We have to find a way to squeeze Purim in. But that's just a little bit of an overview of what we have. Okay, now, um, in this Parsha, we have the count, and there's a lot of play for the count. Also, the formation of the tribes, how they would travel through the desert. Uh, Also, some of the jobs of the Levites. So in general, it's a pretty unexciting portion, and most rabbis choose not to speak on the Torah portion and talk about Shavuos. However, there is things to look at, and one of the concepts we're going to talk about, the Torah did say that they camped in certain organized ways, and they camped by their flags. And the concept of having flags is a Jewish concept. Each tribe had its own tribal flag, which had a picture on it and a specific color. And the color of the flag resembled the color of the stone of the breastplate that the Kohen wore for each tribe on his chest. And they all had a picture that would be somehow typified what this tribe was all about. Okay, so to know that having a flag, Canadian flag, American flag, all this, it it starts its ways way back. The Jewish people had flags first. So we want to, so on, so what's the purpose of a flag? What do you have a flag for? So on a superficial level, you'll say it's nothing more than a decoration. Something to give each tribe an aesthetic look. You know, something we relate to. We relate to this flag. Right? You see parades with flags raging, waving. There's pageantry. It looks beautiful. But if you look at the origins of the flags, you're going to see it as a much deeper message. That's very appropriate for Shavuos. And again, Bamidbor, Parshas Bamidbor, is almost always, unless it's a leap year, sometimes, it's almost always the Parsha before Shavuos. So there has to be something in the message of Parshas Bamidbor that will prepare us better for the upcoming holiday of Shavuos. So let's start by looking at a medrash on a verse of, from Shir Hashirim from Song of Songs. Song of Songs, written by King Solomon, is the famous dialogue between Hashem and the Jewish people, and the Jewish people and Hashem, that in, show the love that we have for each other. And in spite of all the exiles and sufferings that we have endured, uh, we still have a tremendous love, loyalty to Hashem. And on the words of, of Song of Songs, where the words in Hebrew are, Shuvi, Shuvi, Hashulamis. Shuvi, Shuvi, Venech Zabach. Which means in English, the non-Jews of the world are trying to court the Jewish people. And they say to us, return, return, O Shulamis. Return so that we may look upon you. So the Medrash explains what were the non-Jews saying to the Jewish people. So the Medrash in the first source tells us, they basically are saying, listen, turn your back on Hashem. After all, you're in exile, your temple is destroyed. 
come to us. And if you join us, we'll make you leaders. We'll give you power and control. You'll have it a lot better with us if you join us instead of holding tenaciously on to your belief in Hashem. That's what this verse means. Shuvi Shuvi Shalamis, come, come back with us. Be with us now. To this, the Jewish people counter and say, They say to the, the Medrash explains, what does it mean? What can you offer us already? What can you non-Jewish people offer us if we join you guys? What are you going to make us? President of a corporation? To be the owner of a baseball team? Like, what is it that you can give us already? What can you give compared to what I already have? And what is it that we already have? And here's what the Medrash says. Can you give me anything as beautiful as the formations that the Jewish people had with their flags in the desert? That's what the Medrash says. This is a very interesting Midrash. The nations of the world are trying to alienate the Jewish people away from our tradition and from our systems of faith in Judaism. We have to muster up a very cogent and intelligent response to ward off that alienation. So the question is, how is this accomplished by the Jewish people saying we're not going to join you because that would mean that we would lose our flags. We would lose our formations in the desert. Right? So what, what does that mean? What's so great about the flags? What's so great about those formations of deserts that will keep us until today, till today, if the non-Jewish world wants to tempt you to be lured, lured into their lifestyle and everything that's incorporated, which unfortunately many, many Jews are falling into and even Orthodox Jews don't realize how much they fall into this. They buy into the, to the social pressures. The way to ward it off is by the flags. So what is this flags? Such an important, this is what you're saying. This will keep you away from assimilation. These flags that we had in the desert. So that must be kind of important. We don't understand why. We have to analyze this. A second Medrash, also in Shira Shirim, says the following on the words that say, I was in the shadows of God and had a tremendous desire to reside with God. That's what it says in the song. So the Medrash explains that when did this happen? At the Sea of Reeds, after the Jewish people saw that the sea was split for them and they went to the other side. So Jewish people, the Medrash says, had an uncontrollable, tremendous desire for three things when they crossed the sea. Number one, Torah. Number two, the Mishkan. Number three, the flags. Again, we can understand why they want Torah. We can understand why they want a Mishkan. But what in the world are the flags about? Same problem. And there's a third Medrash about the flags. Right? When God is showing, trying to display his love for the Jewish people in source number three, Hashem says, to what extent did he love them? To what extent did he guard them? What extent, to what extent did he keep them? But you see how much Hashem loved this love so much. For Hashem said to Moshe, oh Moshe, tell them that they shall make a tabernacle in their midst, and I shall, as it were, abandon the heavens and come down and dwell amongst them. Moreover, he even organized them under separate flags in his name. Hashem said to Moshe, organize them under flags in my name. Why? Because they are my children and they are my soldiers. So again, the Medrash says this shows how much Hashem loves us and how much he protects us. How do you see the love and how do you see the protection by giving us flags?
Okay, so you see three midrashim, not just one. Three are telling you how important the flags are. The flags will help us resist assimilation. The flags were something Jewish people lusted for greatly. And those flags show God's love for us and his protection for us. How do you see all that? Okay, those are the opening foray of questions. But now let's investigate the origins of the flags a little more. There's more to this story over here. What are the earliest beginnings of the flags and the, and the set of how the Jewish people travel in the desert? Well, there's a number of Midrashim that appear to be conflicting. But there's a number of Midrashim as well. In the fourth source, it says, When Hashem came down to Sinai to give us the Torah, He didn't come alone. He was accompanied by 220,000 angels came down with Him. And they descended in a particular formation. Some on the east, some on the west, some on the north, some on the south. And the Jewish people saw them in in an organized fashion. They saw the positioning of the angels and they were quite overwhelmed by that. And they also had their flags that they were carrying, whatever that means. I mean, the whole story of Sinai is beyond what we can physically explain. And the Jewish people saw them and said, you know, this is something really like. We'd like to have those flag formations. Again, another measure saying they want to have the flag formations. Here's the context of God giving the Torah at Sinai with his angelic um, army around him, as it were. Another source, number five. When Moshe heard that he would now have to put the Jewish people in formations, he smelled trouble was coming. Why? If you know anything about shul politics... You know, there's always a problem how to designate people's seats for the high holidays. <laughs> it's one of the hardest things in most shuls. I have to sit here. I want to sit here. I want to sit with my family. I want to be here. I've been here for a member for 25 years. What is this? Now you're pushing me out of my seat. That's the worst thing in the world. Moshe says, if I'm going to send this tribe to the north, I'm going to say the sun's in our eyes. I put them to the south. We're too close to the band. I put them on the west. You know, it's like all these complaints. You know, just sitting people at a wedding. You know, it's interesting. You make people have give people seats at wedding. That's the biggest, biggest fights you're going to have. You guess. Why'd you set me next to Schmigley Ritz? I don't like him. Would you put me over here? Would you over there? You know, in Montreal, they have a very nice custom. Montreal, they doesn't go like this. There's two sides of the family. The Schwartz family, the Greenberg family. So the Schwartz family says, here, there's 10 tables here. Anyone from the Schwartz simply just sits over there. And the Greenberg family, these 10 tables, they sit from the Greenberg family, they sit over there. They don't even get into that hassle. It's a very smart idea. I think people in Toronto should pick up on that idea. Okay? Because this becomes a very terrible source of aggravation. Person thinks they're very important. What are you sitting with these people for? Right? You spend hours and hours wasting your life. Another tip to make your sim class a little easier: just say open seating, and that's all. But people won't do it because it's so logical and so sensible. But since nobody does it, no one will do that. Anyway, side commentary: no extra charge. Again, don't ask me why you're going to get a specific table at my wedding because. I'm not in charge. Okay. Anyway, but it still might be. We'll see. Who knows? Anyway, the question, so most of you know what to do. But I promise. So don't worry about it. They already know what to do. What do you mean? Well, before Yaakov died, before the great patriot, hundreds of years before Yaakov died, he told his children exactly which way they would stand holding the coffin, taking them back to Israel. It's not the first time the Jewish people traveled from Egypt to Israel. They did a couple hundred years before. When Yaakov died, they had to carry his coffin from Egypt to Israel. And Yaakov told them, you stand over here, you over here, you over here, 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 here. 
Zadie said so, no one's going to argue what Zadie says. Moshe is going to remind them what was already given to them beforehand. So that's amazing, that's good, that took care of Moshe's problem, but the question is, what's the connection between the funeral procession of Yaakov and the formations in the desert? It's just a coincidental connection. And there's one more, so there's another source to the, to the way they stand in their flags. And a final source, source number six, the Pasuk in Tehillim says, Secha, We'll be tremendously happy with your salvation, Hashem. Ubishem and the name of Hashem, and in the name of Hashem we will carry flags, and Hashem will answer our requests for flags. So again, the Medrash is talking about the Jewish people when they crossed the Sea of Reeds, and they were very, when they crossed the Sea of Reeds, they said, we're happy, Hashem will sing out for your salvation, Hashem. And they were happy not only for themselves, but because the name of God was preserved, and they told Hashem, we want to carry His flag. Again, and Hashem said He would honor their request, and they would be able to carry their flags. Again, a mention of the flags. So you have different sources in the flags. Is it Sinai? Is it Yaakov? Is it the Sea of Reeds? And it's many different sources. And Rev Dessler says, when you have so many different sources, it can't be that they're arguing. They're just showing you a different side of the coin, a different flavor of the ice cream. But they're all really one primary idea. But what is clear is this idea of flag stems all the way, and formations stems all the way back from the time of Yaakov. It was reinforced at the Sea of Reeds. It was culminated at the giving of the Torah at Sinai. And, but, although, if you look at your calendar, giving it to Torah Sinai was on the 7th of Sivan, right? But till they had the flags, isn't way till a year later almost, till the second month of the next, second year of ER. Why did it take so long? If we have time, we'll get to that as well. Okay, got a lot of questions, and now we gotta start answering things. Let's go back to that third source that said how much Hashem loved us. And I bolded those words for you at the end of the third source. Why did God give us flags? Why did all these things? Because He loved us. He loved us, why? Because they are my children and they are my soldiers. And I didn't write the whole Medrash, but it brings all kinds of texts and verses to prove the fact that the Jewish people are the children of Hashem and Jewish people are the soldiers of Hashem. So now we have to explain what does it mean to be a child of Hashem. And it's something that all parents should teach their children. Not only are you my child, but more importantly, you're a child of Hashem. And also you're a soldier of Hashem. What do these two terms mean? And we're going to spend a bit of time on this. So to understand this, we'll go to the works of the Baal HaTanya, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he explains in his Tanya the following. Whenever we refer to the Jewish people as children of Hashem, right? And there are many names we give ourselves, but one of them is children of Hashem. We are referring to one specific aspect of our identity. And what is that? Our soul. The soul within the Jew is the expression of the essence of Hashem in this physical world. The Zohar says that the, that, that a neshama is what we call a chelek elokah mimal. Literally, it means a piece of God from on high. Now, of course, it's not a physical piece, right? But it's the closest reality to Hashem in the entire universe is a godly soul that has been put into a human being. And the example I give all the time to explain this idea is what? Because the Torah says Hashem blew a soul into man. So if you take a balloon and you blow up a balloon, okay? Now what's in the balloon? Air. Now are you in the balloon? 
No. no, but your breath is in the balloon. The closest thing to who you are is in the balloon without it being you. You cannot deny that the balloon has been affected incredibly. Its whole shape, form, and existence is based on your breath. And your breath is the closest thing to you without being you. But the greatest impact of who and what you are is your breath. So that's what a soul is. That's that closest aspect of Hashem that is within each and every one of us. Okay. So now, what do we know? What about, about physical children? Physical children have the DNA of their physical parents in terms of genes and qualities and characteristics. A child is really a sophisticated term for the product of a father and mother. So they're gonna, so that, that relationship that we understand physically in this world is identical, our relationship with Hashem and us, we possess within ourselves a spiritual DNA that Hashem put inside of us. And that is, uh, that is what it means to be a child of Hashem. So parents make lots of things. A parent can make many things. They can build furniture, make money. But the closest product of the parent is his child. Certainly Hashem makes many things in this world. But the closest product of Hashem is a, is a soul that he has put in, a godly soul that he has put into the Jewish people. And Hashem is the father of the genes that we have. This we have to understand what we are. This is very important. Until you know who you are, you don't know, you don't, you can't start your life. You are a soul that Hashem put inside of you. Just like we understand, I'm a physical person. I have my mother's and father's genes, and what they are is what I'm, I'm a, a byproduct of. You're a direct byproduct, the closest byproduct of Hashem. Number one. Number two, any of us who have had more than one child will readily know that all children are different. And if any parent thinks that all the children that they have are the same, and they're going to treat them the same and raise them the same, they're running into all kinds of problems. I can guarantee you from experience alone that Hashem has given us a tremendous uh, responsibility to have a relationship with nine different individuals as our children, and they all need to be treated totally different, to be analyzed that they each have different strengths, Different, uh, uh, different weaknesses. You can't talk to one the same way you talk to the other at any stage in life. And that's what you just gotta get used to that fact. So if that we know by physical children are different, so too the same is true in terms of being children of Hashem. Every soul that Hashem has created and fashioned us as being a child of Hashem, each soul has its own specific chemistry, its own set of strengths, which makes that person's neshama unique. And therefore, every Jew has different strengths. Uh, could be similar, but different. There are some Jews who have such strong souls that they will be a warrior for spiritual causes. And they can get out there and, and make noise and fight and, and, and not let things go by. And then there's others who can't do that. There's others who are very loving and giving kind of person, but much quieter and softer. And third, people are much more scholarly than others, and etc., etc. There's all types of different children. We're part of the family of Hashem. And all Jews are children of Hashem, but different children of Hashem. Okay. With this awareness in mind, we can understand the significance of the 12 children of Yaakov. When Yaakov had 12 children, each one had a specific quality that they were strong in. And therefore, and that would be the building blocks of the Jewish nation. Now we understand that when Yaakov thought that Yosef died, he was unconsolable. He couldn't, be, he couldn't get any consolation for his death. 
And on the one hand, you say, well, what's the problem? You had 12 kids. No, one out of 12, you know, it's not bad. You know, 11 of them are alive. You know, so, you know, and what is it that makes a parent so sad if a child dies? I mean, of course, there's a connection and this and that, which we're not minimizing that, but it goes much deeper. If you have 12 children and they're really just 12 carbon copies of you, then what's the difference you lose one carbon copy? So it's 11 carbon copies, not 12. For that matter, who needs so many carbon copies? But that's not true. They're not carbon copies. Each one is a special, unique entity with special strengths. And Yaakov, who understood that these 12 children are now going to be the building blocks of the Jewish people. And there's 12 unique qualities that will be the foundation of the Jewish people. If anybody, if you build a, any of these big condos, it's good to have these condos here, because there's lots of Mishalom, right? Now there must be some basic, uh, uh, base support, um, what do you call it, pillars or whatever, at the foundation. Let's say, let's say that building was constructed, it needs 12 solid foundation pillars to keep it going. What happens if one of them is missing? You're running a great risk that that whole structure is going to come toppling down over time. Because it's not balanced. Right? How about if you make a watch? Right? And the watch has 12 parts to it, right? And the, and, you know, and I guess the old fashioned watches now. That, you know, tick, tick, tick watches, right? So you see my analogies are getting outdated. The tick, tick, tick watches. Well, what if it tick, tick, ticks fine all the way around, you know, one, two, three, four, five, you know, through 11 of the 12 places to go. But by one of them, the, uh, the, 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 the mechanics is a little bit tight and the watch catches on it for about a half a second longer. You understand what I'm saying? So now, so what's going to happen to that watch over a short period of time? It won't work. What are you talking about? But 11 twelfths of the watch is good. The answer is you don't have 12 twelfths of the watch working to perfection. You don't have a watch that works, plain and simple. So Yaakov understood as the architect of the Jewish people, we needed to have 12 children, 12 pillars. If you're missing one pillar, the structure will not last. So when Yosef died, he was, if any of the children would have died, there'd be no future for the Jewish people because one of the pillars wasn't there. That's how important the uniqueness of each child is. And on the other hand, just as we say each child has a new, unique contribution to make, that's a blessing, but it's also an incredible challenge. Because although each child makes his own contribution, we have to realize that we are still contributing to the entire unit. And if a person gets totally caught up into his private specialty and develops a certain perspective of life because of that, he could tend to become very intolerant to other perspectives that are based on other specialties that he does not have. And therefore, the pillars, although they are strong pillars in and of themselves, there's a great challenge for what? For them to work in cohesive way that they won't challenge each other and destroy themselves and not even allow the building to arise, which was a problem that Joseph and the brothers did have to a certain extent that we're not going to get into right now. But you have 12 giants, each one with unique gifts. They have to be able to appreciate the talents of the others and not only view the world as a correct way through the lens that they have in life. And therefore, Yaakov, on his deathbed, he called his children together and said to them, each of you have unique talents. 
develop your unique talents, but respect the talents that your other brothers have as well. And that's why he arranged them in a specific order and said, because if your talent is this, you're going to stand over here and you're going to be here and you're going to be here. It's all because you're different. You have different jobs and different roles in different places, but you got to remember you're carrying one coffin together and you've got to work in tandem or this will not work. We'll never get to Eretz Yisrael. And that's what Yaakov was foreshadowed in his dream that he saw many, many years before when he put the 12 stones under his head and when he woke up in the morning he found that they all turned into one. He was hoping that that would be how his children would behave. Okay, so now you understand what it means. We can begin to appreciate the significance of the flags in the desert. Why? Here is one of the big hang-ups that people have with Torah Judaism. And you know, you, you can even see it in, in last Sunday's big Asifa that was held in uh, City Field in New York. Um, you know, there was a big, big uh, uh, gathering of Orthodox Jews. The City Field holds 40,000 people in it. And it was filled nearly 100% of, with men with black hats, black coats, and beards and glasses. Okay, maybe not all of them had glasses, maybe not all of them had beards, but they all, it was a sea of black and white. They hear a whole discussion about the perils of the internet. It was such an overflow crowd, they also had to rent Arthur Ashe Stadium next door with another 20,000 people there. Okay, and that's just mostly from New York. Forget about the rest of the United States, okay? Now, anyway, a person looks at that, and if you look at some of the blogs that people were writing, because, you know, right now you're only hearing the negative things about this, because people... But one of the things people mistakenly believe, that Judaism just makes you all into one mold, and there's no individuality in Judaism. Look what it means to be an Orthodox Jew. You grow a beard like everybody, you wear a hat like everybody, you have a black hat like everybody else, and you have glasses like everybody else, and you're carrying a gemara with you like everybody else. It's just a cookie-cutter mold. That's all it is. And it's very disconcerting for people that feel they're being told, listen, you just go with the pack and we'll mold you, and we're going to tell you what kind of person you're supposed to be. And that is a most erroneous understanding of Judaism. That it was so far that even a woman tried to, she successfully smuggled herself in by dressing herself up in a black suit and covering up that she shouldn't look, you know, like a woman and had a hat on and everything and made sure not to talk. And she wrote her uh, secular female perspective of this event, which of course you probably didn't understand 90% of it because most of the speeches were in Yiddish. Anyway, (laughs) but, but that is, you know, she's coming from that perspective and all the naysayers are saying that's all typical Judaism. Why weren't the women invited? How come only men? And look, they're all the same. You just become a robot. You don't think for yourself. And who is interested in such a religion? That's one of the big mistakes secular Jews who unfortunately are, are illiterate and ignorant to what Judaism is. They make these kinds of comments. Therefore, Hashem purposely, when he came down and gave us the Torah at Sinai, because this Torah is going to establish, would cast the die for what Judaism would be, he came down with 220,000 angels. Some in the east, some in the west, some in the north, some in the south, with their own flags, to say that even with the giving of the Torah, no matter how forceful that Torah is, everyone will still have a unique place. Hashem wanted us to know our place. He wants us to know our own place, to develop our place, and respect everyone else's place. Because after all, what is an angel? What is an angel? Angels are created for one purpose, two, two words. Serve God. But we know there's another rule. No angel does a job of another angel. 
No two angels have the same job. So Hashem comes down to the Jewish people with the angels, with a whole mess of them, and saying, you know, I got a whole retinue of angels that are with me. And guess what? None of them does the same job. None of them has the same position. They're all in a different place. And that which I already have before, I'm giving you the Torah now, and through this Torah I will give you that as well. You are not going to be a mass mold like really the secular world is without them admitting it. They're all one mass mold following what somebody in Paris tells them to dress. As if they think for themselves, right? Rather, you're going to have a unique place, a unique contribution to make. Each and every one of you has your own color, your own picture. And the Midrash says, that's what the Jewish people desired. When they saw the angels come back, we desire to have those flags. We want that individuality. So when Hashem wanted to prove the Jewish people that He loved us so much... He brought us down the Torah with his entourage of angels and he said to them, look, you know how much I love you? I gave you flags. Because flags means as a unique group here. Our tribe is unique and just like our tribe is unique, everyone within the tribe is unique. When we count the Jews, we count not just tribes, but then we go down to, to groups within the tribe and then families within the tribe. We split it down and down and down and down to show that that's the idea of a flag, that there is individuality. And that's the Chiddush, the insight of what happened with the giving of the Torah. So now, of course, people are going to say, that's very nice, Rabbi. Very nice to talk about individuality. So the question that's always asked at this Parsha class and at others like this, so afterwards someone will come over to you, promise you, Rabbi, can you please tell me what my special um, individual talent is? You know, and they don't know what the answer is, so it's very good to tell me this theory, but I don't know what my special individual talent is. So what's the answer that I'll give it to you now so you don't have to waste our time afterwards? Is it's not, it's an important rule. Again, we're teaching you spiritual equations. Every Parsha class is meant to teach you spiritual equations that are more real than the laws of physics. Okay? So the next spiritual equation is, it's not possible to know one's place and position without exposing oneself heavily to Torah. I'll say it again. It's not possible for a person to know their purpose in life without a full exposure to what Torah is all about. Okay, that's an equation of life. And I'll show it to you in a minute why. If anybody thinks they know why they're living in this world, if they don't have enough exposure to Torah, there's a good chance they don't know what they're doing in life. They could get lucky and maybe do what they're supposed to do, but there's no guarantees. Why? Because at Sinai, what happened? Hashem revealed those formations, that uniqueness to to the nation as a whole. But it happened with the giving of the Torah. So Hashem is saying, look, I'm giving you Torah. And look at those angels. Those angels have already been studying Torah for years before I've given the Torah. And look that they have individuality. So now if you want to have that same individuality, you will have to study the Torah as well. And this is something only experience can prove it. If you haven't learned enough, you don't know what I'm talking about. If you have learned a lot, you do know what I'm talking about. Take any secular Jew. He doesn't know what his purpose in life is. Or he only does what people tell him it is. If he will learn Torah for many years and expose himself to a lot of Torah, all of a sudden, people start saying, you know, I didn't know I had this in me. And all of a sudden, a certain self-discovery comes to a person within the context of learning Torah. Here is the point, and this is critical. 
the first step in discovering the unique self of a person is first you have to discover that there's a self to begin with. That's the first thing you have to learn. What do I mean to say? Are you a person who just runs after pleasures like an animal? Then if so, you've never found yourself. You found the animal that you're masquerading as. Okay? Let alone to know what your unique personality is. If you don't know what your humanness is, your Jewish humanness by definition is, how are you going to know what your Jewish humanness unique personality is if you don't even know that you have a human personality to begin with, a Jewish one? Are you looking outside of yourself to find purpose? Are you looking inside of yourself to find purpose? First, you have to find yourself. If you don't even find the self, how can you find the self's unique purpose? Now, how is that going to happen? Now, remember what we said. You are a child of God. You're not a child of Madison Avenue. You're not a child of university. You're a child of God. Why? Because you have a holy soul. Now, how does one know what's in one's soul? There's only one piece of information, the Torah. God and the Torah and the Jewish people, Zohar says, are one. Torah is that which ignites the sparks of self, soulfulness, that's in a person, for him to recognize who he is. And then that can become the catalyst for growth. Do you understand? You, most people walk around themselves and think they're a body. If you think you're a body, then you're going to find what's the purpose of a body? The same like a cow and a mule. It's the same purpose. But you're trying to find the purpose of what you're masquerading as, but not who you really are. And you can walk around your life saying, I had a purpose. My purpose, cow-like existence was such and such. But you weren't a cow. You were a godly soul. And you never addressed the godly soul. You didn't even know you had a godly soul. You never were in touch with your godly soul. And that godly soul is really what you are. If you at least know what you are, then you can start to analyze, well, what's the unique purpose of what I am? But if you don't know what you are, you're trying to find the unique purpose of being a cow, you're going to find a different answer. You follow? So my unique purpose is to be great in sports. That has nothing to do with your soul has nothing to do with your soul. But I pride myself that I'm really good that I can hit the puck into the net. I'm not saying you can't play hockey to have to, for health reasons to be strong because Hashem wants to be strong. There's nothing wrong with, with playing sports. But to say that's my goal in life, that's my pur- My unique purpose is I could get a hat trick. My unique purpose is a triple-double in basketball because I can play better than anybody else. That's for a cow. Not for a Jew. A Jew has a soul. A soul is much more unique, is much more lofty, and would expect to have much more lofty goals for who you are, not the sheepskin you've put on and trying to find a purpose with the external context of the sheepskin of who you are. Okay? So and, there, and there's such a deep connection to the Jewish people and the Torah. The Zohar, as I said, the Jewish people and the Torah and Hashem are one. We also know that we're counting the Jewish people with 600,000 Jews. Mystically, we say there's 600,000 letters of the Torah. So what does that mean? That each Jew is connected to a letter of the Torah. Now, how are you going to know where... You, now, if you find your place, and I don't have time now to get into that. If you find your place, which letter are you in the Torah, that's good. But if you don't know what the whole Torah says, then how do you know what your purpose is within the context of the whole Torah? 
So only when you learn Torah, and Torah begins to say, you know what, you're not a body, you're a soul, and all these equations we keep teaching every week in the Parsha class. This is an equation, this is an equation, this is an equation, this is what life is all about, this is what life's all about, this is what your soul is all about, this is what you are all about, your soul has ten midos, that's what Shavuos, the whole seven weeks, to know I have qualities of Chesed, Vura, Tiferes, Netzachot, Yesod, Malchus, Chachma, Bina, and Das, that's what I really have. Ask a non-Jew, what do you have? He doesn't know what he has. Even a Jew that doesn't learn this doesn't know what he has. You don't know the qualities of chesed that you have within inside yourself that were meant to be expressed and used. We don't even know what chesed means, not just kindness. No, it's just saying it's just kindness. It's Jewish kindness, not Goyish kindness. You have to study what kindness means for weeks and weeks and weeks to know what I'm supposed to do. As we've given a different series of classes, what are going to be the ten questions on the final exam when you go up to Shemaim? That's Hashem saying, that was the purpose that you had of being a generic Jew. If you don't know what it means to be a generic Jew, how are you going to find out what a specific Jew is? We all know this. Even the non-Jews understand this idea. They can't argue this concept. Why don't you go to university? You go to university. You're leaving high school. You go to university. What will every university tell you to do? Most kids don't know what they want to do. So the general course of education. You take the core curriculum of the humanities and all these other Mishigasim that they hold to be very important things. And when you learn a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, after two, three years, maybe you now that you realize what's out there in the world of academia, now maybe something has touched you. And now, you know what? Really, I like medicine. That really is touches my, my soul. I really like law. I like social work. But you can't know what your unique is in the world of academia till you don't have any academic background. So even in a secular way, they can understand that to a certain extent. But now we're not talking about just academics. We're talking about your soul. We're talking about you are a child of Hashem. You are a unique child of Hashem. And how can you know if you're, what your unique purpose as a child of Hashem is if you don't even realize you're a child of Hashem? If you think you're a mistake between a man and a woman who brought you into the world, you're part of a, co- a cosmic mistake that you were locally a mistake as well, and that's and you're here just as a physical human being. So you're an intellectual, rational animal. Rational animal has different purpose than a godly soul person. That's what's so hard to be a Jew, because you see, everybody else in the world doesn't live this way. And you don't understand, how could I be different than anybody else? And that's what Hashem is saying. You see how much I loved you? Right? But a Jew doesn't know Torah. You can't just say, I'm a proud Jew. And since I'm a proud Jew, I'm different than a Goy. Fiddlesticks. It's not true. You're not different than a Goy if you just say, I'm a proud Jew. So there's proud Catholics and proud Christians. We all believe in one God. So what's the difference? You, you do it Saturday, we do it Sunday, they do it on Friday. Big deal. Does that make you unique? It doesn't make you unique at all. We're all the same. But if you realize you have a godly soul that they do not have, and you have godly talents that they do not have, but how are you going to know that? You have to study the Torah. That's what we said last week. It's the blueprint of creation. It tells you the blueprint of who you are. And now you see the blueprint. Then you can begin to say, you know what? Based on this blueprint, now I can begin to think, what's my unique contribution? Because now at least I know what my generic talents are. And now I see where are my unique talents within this generic realm. And then I'll be able to find out who I am. And this, of course, is not the answer you want to hear. You just want them to say, do this. And they can't do that for you because you won't buy into that because you don't have the background to buy into that. You have to first go through the difficult process of really 
going through the intellectual and spiritual pursuit of knowing what it means to have a soul and what luggage you carry, what tools you carry by having a godly soul. And now that you're one of God's children, you gravitate to a whole different wealth and shang in life. And if you have a whole different wealth and shang in life, then when you're going to look for the unique purpose, it's going to be in that wealth and shang and not in a crooked wealth and shang. That all happened at Sinai. Okay, now if you don't know what that is, you don't learn a lot of Torah. Well, Rabbi, you know, I'm I'm a busy housewife. I don't have a lot of time to learn Torah. Okay, so what do you do? You go to a class where what in this one hour you're getting hundreds of hours of, of knowledge that took me hundreds of hours. I'm giving it to you in one hour. They're not going to get in one class. You can go. That's why we'll go to Rebbe's, go to Tzaddikim, who know, who have a spiritual gift, know to be able to penetrate the person's soul and to say, "This is what you should do." When we had a prophet, you went to the prophet, prophet, and we trusted and believed the prophets. That's very important. You got to trust and believe. The prophet would say, "I see in your soul. This is what you're supposed to do." Finished. That's for spiritually weak people or people who just don't have the time to be involved in Torah study. Now, if you have a husband who learns Torah study, then being close to a husband that is involved in Torah study, he will share that with the family will come as well. Be that as may, the question now isn't how to get to it. The question is to realize that you have it. And you should want it. And you're only going to get it because Hashem gives you the Torah. So now, this is shows Hashem's love. Measure says, see how much I loved you? I loved you. So much to know that you're special. I gave you a Torah with the angels to show you that you are so special. You are my child. And with my child, I gave you specific talents and a specific purpose that only you can do for me and nobody else can do for me. Wouldn't that make you feel special? The only problem is the Almighty hasn't tapped you on the shoulder and said it that way. But that's what he's saying in this part. That's what the Medrash is saying. Hashem said, you're so special. I'm, you're my child. And I made you so... Isn't that what you tell your kids? Isn't that what you tell your kids? Don't you want your kids... How do your kids love you? Say, me and daddy, we got together. We brought you in this world. And we brought you in with beautiful, holy talents. And you're such a special child. Because you're so kind and thoughtful in this and that. And then the child will... That shows your love for the child. And that's the love that Hashem has for us. The problem is, most Orthodox Jews don't think about this. They're too busy doing mitzvahs all day long and running around doing carpools and cooking cheesecakes for shavuos and not stopping to think, how much does Hashem really love me? If you think for 10 minutes how much Hashem loves me, it's better than making a cheesecake. Because the cheesecake, you know, again, we're no different than a goy. A goy makes pumpkin pie, we make cheesecake. How are we different than a goy? So different flavor? I'm not saying not to make cheesecake, chas v'shol, but to understand why you're making a cheesecake. Because remember, cheesecake is symbolic of Torah. Right? Cheesecake. Cheese is made from milk. Milk is chalav. Chalav is called ches lamed beis. The numerical value of chalav. Ches is 8, lamed is 30, beis is 40. The Torah is given in 40 days. We're making cheesecake, think of Torah. Not about the next recipe to make. It could be the same recipe because it's the same milk, it's the same Torah. You're making cheesecake, because when you eat the cheesecake, it's not how yummy and tasty it is, although it is. But it's cheesecake is Torah cake. That's what it is. It's telling you Torah. And Torah is as, 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 unlike milk. Milk from a mother nurtures a child. And without the milk, the child would die. The Torah nurtures you like milk that, milks a, a, that nurses a child. You'd be dead without Torah. Oh, now that's a good cheesecake. 
That's where the taste of the cheesecake comes from, from what it's symbolizing. And that's symbolizing, I'm so special. Hashem makes me special. And this cheesecake is just a symbolic reference of how special I am. Therefore, you need not eat more than one sliver to not gain any weight on Shavuos. One taste is all you need to know how special you are. See, that's what women have to be focusing on. It's with the message of the cheesecake. Okay, it's not unfair to have another recipe. But if, if you're going to spend all the time cooking and cooking and cooking and not thinking, that's why it's good you came to the class. Now, that's what's behind me. It's nice. Hashem loves me. That's why they wanted to have these flags. I want to feel special. I want to feel like those angels. So you will, you will. I'm giving you this Torah. If you will study this Torah, you will find out who, who the self, there is a self. The real self is the soul. And then you'll have chance, then it'll become revealed to you what the unique soul is. Hashem will put situations in your life that you wouldn't, without Torah, you wouldn't even notice the situations coming past you. Let's say a simple example. I'm oversimplifying this. And life isn't so simple. Let's say your purpose in life was to raise five orphans. I don't know. But let's say that was your purpose. And that would be an amazing thing. Right? But the problem is you never really learned a lot of Torah. You never really learned to appreciate what godly kindness is. You rather ran after the animalistic pursuits of how to make a lot of money. And you were very successful in business. And then when somebody, and then you read the newspaper, five orphans need a home, it doesn't give any trigger. There's no trigger in you. And that purpose just goes right by you. You didn't even think twice about it because you were much more important than how your stocks are doing, how you're moving up the corporate ladder. Had you exposed yourself to Torah and know what kindness really is and how that's a godly personification of who you are, and it's the greatest feeling in the world is to do kindness and you would have been inculcated with that mindset your feelers, your antenna would be up you would be engaged in another type of lifestyle and then when the opportunity passed by you go, bingo, that's something I have to do and then you'd find the unique purpose it's the greatest tragedy everyone will live their life the unique purpose will pass them right by they didn't even realize what are you talking about since when do I come since when to me the me female 40 year old executive vice president most prestigious company in the world who in the world would have thought that my purpose was to raise five five orphans Hashem says because you never found out who you really were you got involved in a woman's lib thing that said if you make a lot of money you found your purpose in life I'm not saying maybe some women have a purpose in life to make money but I don't know but let them learn Torah first before they decide that. Right? that that's, that's what it's all about. But then Hashem says, not only does He love us, but He protected us. He protected us. What's the protection over here? So the commentaries say like this. If a person is towing the line like everybody else, and the person really has not found his unique abilities, and doesn't find that particular fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness in life, what happens is they're really just going through the motions. And after a while, and this explains a lot of things over here, especially when you get to mid-age, mid, mid age, like my age or a little before, a little after, I always say to get this midlife crisis. Because people start asking the question, have I really fulfilled my sense of self? And if you really haven't found out who your unique self is, invariably the answer will become no. And then an image of frustration gets set into the person and frustration is the breeding ground for lots of trouble because the worst thing that a Jewish people a person can be worse than any Avera in the world is being depressed depression isn't an Avera itself but it will lead you to the worst sins in the world 
the greatest source of depression and why most people in the world today are depressed and taking all these pills, all these things to make them forget about their depression is because very simple, they're not finding their purpose in life. Because unfortunately, they looked at their external selves, the external animalistic self just wants pleasure, and at the end of the day, it doesn't cut it. It doesn't cut it. When you get to a certain age, you realize, so what did I accomplish in life? Nothing. Really nothing at the end of the day. And then the person gets depressed. And that's the Yetzirah's favorite breeding ground. Once you're depressed, nobody understands me. Then you start doing everything. Even if, even if you're an Orthodox Jew your whole life, it's not going to stop you from being depressed if you're not finding the unique self that's inside of you. And that explains why you find quote-unquote Orthodox Jews who do all kinds of hideous sins. All kinds of terrible things. You know why? Because they're really depressed. They never found the true selves. These are people who really never studied a lot of Torah. They just were nice Jews and do what God says, but never really got a lot of satisfaction out of it because they never really found the true selves in themselves. And then you can get in lots of trouble. And you need protection from that kind of trouble. And that's what Hashem is saying. Look, these flags are an expression, a symbol of self-expression. They give us a sense of God's love, that we have a new, new, unique purpose, and they protect our spirituality. A person who feels spiritually fulfilled will never do an Avera, at least intentionally. You might make mistakes. Yes, everyone makes mistakes. But you don't fall into this rut and say, I don't care, to heck with it all, I'm throwing off the whole religion. Or I just clandestinely will go on the internet for five hours a night because I don't find any purpose in life. I mean, why would else, else would anybody go on to every of these crazy websites if you had a per, if you had some important things to do? People with important things to do don't have time to browse the internet. I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, maybe just buying something online because you need to buy. I'm just browsing it for interest's sake, which unfortunately is becoming the great, the great disease in the world. I have no friends, so I'll go to Facebook, I'll get friends. What's wrong with all people right around you? Around people, oh, I don't know how to make friends. Yeah, because the Torah teaches you how to make friends. You never learned the Torah teaches you how to make friends. You don't know how to make a friend because you don't know who you are. Remember, you can't make a friend if you don't know who you are. Can you make a friend if you don't know who you are? Now, how can I be a friend with someone else when the I is missing in the equation? Well, wait a minute, I know who I am. No, no, you don't know who you are. You know what everybody tells you you are. Because as much as the secular people believe in freedom of expression, all that, they're all just mimicking each other. That's all they really are. Let's be honest. They're all trying to cheat the other guy out and to get the job that everyone's looking for. Right? That, that, that is no self-expression. And that's why they become depressed. You become depressed, you do all kinds of things. And that's the protection that Hashem is giving us. Now, if you look, anyone familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, what's the highest need on Maslow's pyramid? What is it? Self-actualization. You can't get that. If you're a Jew, you can't get that if you don't come in contact with your neshama. If you don't know that you're a child of God, you will never get it. You may fool yourself, but you're never going to get self-actualization. Getting a hat trick is self-actualization. After all, it doesn't cut it for you. It's not real. Real is the real you doing the real thing you're really supposed to do. Then you feel self-actualization. So what's my unique purpose? Good luck, man. If you don't have any Torah, forget it. You're doomed. You're doomed to not be able to, to be happy in life. This is the way it is. Now, you don't have to be a scholar. You better hang around scholars. You better have trust in the scholars that they know what they're talking about. Learn the spiritual equations of life. And then you realize, you know, whatever it is, you, know, you get married. You get married. Why are you getting married? Because everybody else gets married. Huh. That's not a reason to get married. 
Everyone gets mad. I'm lonely. That's not a reason to get married. So then your marriage isn't going to give you anything either. You're going to be depressed from that marriage too. You don't know what your purpose is in marriage. All these things, don't ask these questions. And that's why no one's getting married anymore because they found out it doesn't make sense to get married. Ah, oh, no, God gave a unique purpose to bring unique children in the world to be unique people to serve Hashem. Now you begin to see some purpose. And maybe if women would know what their nishamas are, they wouldn't be so afraid to have more children to know that that is one of their unique purposes. Then they feel fulfilled. And when you get older, you're not saying, you know, I lived my whole life and never had any kids. No, because, because everyone was telling me when I was younger, no, you don't want to do that. You don't want to be one of those people, one of those babushka carrying women who have no, who have no sense of self. No, you go to a corporate place. You go up that ladder with like the other 50,000 people trying to kill each other as if you're not, as if that's going to make you more unique. And that, that's a problem. People just bought that hook, line, and sinker. All right? So that's being children of Hashem. You understand what it means? Hashem loves us. You understand what the flags? The flags are saying you're unique. But that uniqueness only will come Sorry to say, it's not going to go to the Far East with some Zen um, Buddhist. Because that's also not talking about your soul. It's running away from your soul. It's got to be in a Torah environment that talks to your soul. There's no shortcuts to this. Okay? That's what it means. I still got time. Good, Baruch Hashem. That's what it means to be a child of Hashem. Do you understand that? And you got to teach that to your kids. If you don't teach to your kids, then you're doing an injustice. They have to know what it means to be a child of Hashem. Exactly that. Okay, now. But then we said, you're also my soldiers. What does it mean to be a soldier? And, and God gave the Jewish people flags also because we're soldiers. So what's that idea of being a soldier? So go to source number seven. The Midrash says in the words in Asia, She opened her mouth with wisdom and the law of kindness is on her tongue. What was the wisdom? Who had wisdom? What was the wisdom? Says the Medrash. From the day that Hashem created the world until the children of Israel stood near the sea, known besides them, sang unto God. Nobody ever sang, sang to Hashem. And when the Jewish people sang the song at the Sea of Reeds, Hashem said, I've been waiting for these people all along. That's what it says. Nobody sang before Hashem. That's what the Medrash says. Until the Jews sang the sea. The next source says... That Hashem's throne was not firmly established, nor were you known in your world before your children recited the song. What is that supposed to mean? And the Medrash goes into much more detail. I didn't bring it into the whole Medrash. The Medrash says, you know, Avram got saved, Yisrael got saved, Yaakov got saved. They never sang to him. What does it mean he never sang to him? You mean because Avram never thanked Hashem that he was saved? I'm sure he thanked him. What does it mean he never sang to him? What does all this mean? What's supposed to mean? And here is an idea we've said once in the past, but it bears repeating. What was the Chachma? What was the wisdom Jews had when they crossed the Sea of Reeds safely? Now, they didn't come to it on themselves. They came because Moshe taught it to them. So let's not give the Jews all the credit. We'll give Moshe the credit, but the Jewish people will get credit to listen to what their leader told them. So imagine, you, you, just got, you just were saved from a harrowing experience. You were about to die. You are about to be drowned into the sea. God made a miracle. Split the sea, got on the other side. Get to the other side. What's going to be your reaction? Reaction number one is, oh boy, thank God we got saved. Reaction number two, you start thinking, but wait a minute, who got us into this mess in the first place? How did we get to this position where we almost died? Because we listened to God. God told us, backtrack, make it look like you're lost. And I'll pitch you and pitch yourself right in front of the sea of reeds. Now you're going to be surrounded by the Egyptians. And now you're going to be threatened to die. And now I'll save your life. God, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. If we wouldn't have listened to you to begin with, we would have been better off. We'd just gone out of power and never have chased us. 
So a person will say, why, why thank God? And this is where the great wisdom came in. Because the problem with a person's ability to think, if you only think very narrowly about what's in it for you, then, of course, you don't have a lot to thank for. If you're always looking, what's it for me? What's it for me? What's it for me? For me, for me, I'm glad he saved me. But for me, better I shouldn't have gotten into that pickle. But what was the wisdom? The wisdom was that they realized that when Hashem split the sea, it had nothing to do with them. They weren't the focal point. The focal point was Hashem. And just like when a movie producer, I don't know who the, I guess he is, the, who's the one who finds the, the actors? Is it the producer? I don't know. The cast of who? The casting agent. The casting agent. Okay, whatever. So, but it, it, it's kind of important you have to have the right actor playing a right part. I mean, that's probably one of the most important things. I mean, there's a lot of important things, but if you've got the wrong actor with, with a certain part, it's not going to work. So just to realize Hashem was making a movie. The movie was, you know, the original Exodus. The original. And the whole point of the storyline is to show how great God is. God is all-powerful. God has control of the whole world. God, there is no force other than God. And that's the message, the take-home message from the movie. Okay? Uh, so now, Hashem says, I need a cast. I need a cast that will be able to play the role of... And now, where is this all going to be seen through? Through the protection and the salvation that God gives for the Jewish people, the greatness of God will be seen. Now, after they cross the reeds, see if reeds, the Jews began to realize, you know, this story wasn't about us. You know, it wasn't just a question of huh, poor or poor Jewish people who were, who, were, who were slaves. And look, God wanted to save them. And he tried his best to save them. And it was all about saving the Jews. And I don't do it saving the Jews. It was one thing. God wants the whole world to know, I am God. I'm the only force. I'm the only purpose in life. Everything revolves around me and the commandments I gave you. And that's your only salvation to life. The main star was God. And the Jewish people were thankful that they were picked to take a supporting role of being the vehicle through which the miracles could happen. And they said, thank you not just for saving us, Hashem. Thank you for giving us a purpose to be the vehicle to sanctify your name in this world. Certainly, Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov thanked Hashem for saving them, but they didn't have that deep insight. Remember, Judaism is in its formative stages to realize that it had nothing to do. It's not about me. It's about God. And my whole life is dedicated to God. And that's what the Jewish people understood at that point. And that's why they said, and we will shout for your salvation. When they opened up their mouths and they sang songs. Well, look at the Shira. Next time you look at the Shira Sayyam. It's all about Hashem. It's not one word, oh, we're so lucky we got saved. We deserve to be saved. No, we can say, no, they do it. It's all God, 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 God. But then guess what? If there weren't the Jewish people to be saved, there would never have been such an occurrence. So they began to realize, we shout for your salvation. And God says, now, now my throne is set. Because now that's what it means to be a soldier. A soldier means it's not about me. It's about the king. It's much more important. Okay? So we ask for flags twice. We ask for flags at Sinai. We ask for flags at the sea. It's no contradiction. The flags at Sinai, what did Hashem do? He showed us our unique purposes. On Sinai, we have the flags because we're children of God. We have unique purposes. 
the Medrash about the Sea of Reeds is talking about the other purpose of the flag. That purpose is we began to understand our privileged position of being soldiers of Hashem. There's two aspects that are not conflicting each other. There's an aspect of being a unique child of Hashem and there's an aspect of being a soldier of Hashem. At Sinai, the child relationship was revealed because through the Torah, you will understand your neshama and that neshama creates a child relationship and the Sea of Reeds that were made to discover their privileged position of being soldiers. They were privileged to be a soldier and that's why we have the flags for both reasons. You understand? That's what a soldier is. Okay, now we come to the last part. We're really doing good. We may even finish early. And that'll never happen. Okay. But hey, we'll finish on time. We'll finish on time. Okay. So you, you understand now. You understand what this, these flags are not just a clanicate over here. These flags mean you have a unique soul. And you look at, if you look, if we, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the Israeli flag now. Okay. If you look at, a, if we had the old Jewish flags, right? We've got to wait. I've got to finish. I'll take a question. Afterwards. Right? So I have a unique soul and I'm a soldier of Hashem. And it was something that Yaakov taught us as well. So let's go back to Yaakov and we'll wrap it all up. Look at the last source. If you look carefully, what happened is, when, right before he died, he blessed each one of his 12 children. Each one got a unique blessing based on his strength. But then, at the end, it says like this. It says, the Pusik says, after he gave each one a blessing, he says, each blessing that I give each of one that you have, you should all get everybody's blessing now. He said, Reuben, I gave you this blessing. Shimon, I gave you this blessing. When I'm finished, I want all 12 of you to have all 12 of the blessings of everybody. I give you a blessing for this. I give you a blessing for this. Each one got their own blessing. And then at the end, he said, and you know what? Now, I want you all to have all 12 blessings together. Each one will have all 12 blessings at the end. So that's what the Medrash says in number nine. Since we have already been told that he blessed them, why add everyone according to his blessing? He blessed them. Because he had blessed Yehuda with the qualities of a lion, Dan with the qualities of a serpent, Naphtali, a hind, Benjamin, a wolf. Therefore, in the end, he embraced them all in one blessing, declaring them all lions, all serpents, all wolves. In other words, he gave them all the 12 qualities. So the question is, well, if he gave them all the 12 qualities, then why did he do that to begin with? Why did he give everybody their own quality first as opposed to second? If you want to give them all 12, give them all 12 in one shot. And here you're going to come to the deepest lesson of the day. When we talk about spiritually growing, there's two ways that this can happen. One is good, but the other one is unbelievably good. Halavai will be good, but unbelievably good is even better. One way is person say, listen, okay, you're talking about unique ideas, this, well, that's amazing, great. I'm a child of God, I got it all. Beautiful, I understand it. I want, I, I, I want to find my unique purpose in life. I want to develop. I want to grow. Okay? Now that's very exalted. That's amazing. And But there's still one problem with that. Because it's incredibly self-centered. If you're a child of God, and you're only that, you say, I'm going to be happy about my unique role. Right? I'm really good about it. It's still a lot about me. Halavai would be on this level. But there's a much higher level. You could say, listen, yes, I'm interested in my development, but ultimately as a soldier, I care for the message of God to the world. You know why I want these things? It's not even about my self-esteem. It's because that's the best way I could serve the Almighty and let the Almighty's goals be.
be accomplished in this world. It's the same thing, but a different focus. You hear there's the focus? I want to feel good about myself. So therefore, I'll go into religion. I'll look into my soul. I'm going to feel good about it. That's good. Hashem's happy. It's not a negative. It's not a negative at all. But you're selling yourself, selling yourself short of what you could even get better. If you would just say, you know what, it's not, a, even spiritually, it's not about me. That's why it's so tricky. It's spirituality, right? Can it be about me? Yes, it can. But don't limit yourself. Say, it's not about me. It's about Hashem. What does Hashem want me to do that will make Hashem greater in this world? Now, the first way is a focus on the me. It's the focus of the child. Second is the focus of the soldier beyond what Hashem wants. Now, I'll tell you two major differences. If everybody's focused on the me, you have 12 very religious Jews fighting with each other because, you know, I want to be what I can be the best, but, but, that, but if I'm going to help you, I won't be the best that I can be. If I have to accommodate you, then that doesn't accommodate me. Even in spirituality, there'll be conflict. That's why we have so many different shuls in Thornhill. Because it's not about Hashem, it's about me. It's about me and my job, and me and my chevra, and me and my way, and this and that. And you have so many, and nobody wants to help anybody. Everybody's afraid of the next person. That's just the way. There's always a shul you don't go to, right? Because it's, it's about me, my spiritual growth. And therefore, you lose that um, uh, uh, cohesion. And, and then uh, you, just don't, you, just, you can be as good as you can be. So, so what's so bad about that? The answer is like this. If you're worrying about yourself... Then, fine. So let's say Hashem says, okay, based on your purpose in life, you will achieve X. X, whatever X is. Let's say it's 30% of the ultimate. What you were destined was 30% of the ultimate. The ultimate in kindness. And you're destined with your soul to get 30% of that. And if you work hard, you'll get 30%. 40% in wisdom. 50% in these things. That's what I made you. And that's your purpose. And I'm going to say, did you get 30%, 40%, 40%? And said, I did. And Hashem says, it's fine. It's good. You're a good Jew. You're going home. Everything's fine. But, oh, you could have had so much more. Why? Because you can only be as good as you're destined to be. This is what you are. This is the soul I gave you. You're only working with the soul you have. You're only working with the tools you have. And you're limited. You're, you're, the best you can be is the best you're meant to be. So you're saying, so what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with it. But if I could give you more, would you want more? Now, if you keep saying, I'm doing this because I want to find my self-satisfaction in my spiritual development, so you're only going to go as far as you're destined to go. But once you say one, once you feel and make one different change, it's not about me, it's about Hashem's desires. You know, I want to be, I want to do kindness because that's what Hashem wants. And I want to learn more Torah because that's what Hashem wants. Now it's not about you. If it's not about you anymore, it's about Hashem, Hashem has unlimited resources. Now you're tapping something that's way beyond what you are. And all of a sudden, you're going to accomplish more than you were ever destined to accomplish to begin with. And that's what Yaakov was saying to his children. He says, you have this potential, and you have this potential. And if you focus on your potential, you'll be an amazing guy. But remember, your potential is limited to who you are. If you can find a way to become not just a child, but a soldier. A soldier says, the main thing is that God's honor is glorified, not mine. And therefore, I'll even help my friend. Even though it may appear to hurt me, I will help him. But once you're cluing into God, then God then says, but you know what? You can get the blessings of all 12. 
You can have everybody else's strength, even though it wasn't your strength to begin with. But when you're tapping into God's world, God knows no limitation. It's not here is kindness, here's control, here's this, here's that. This is what you have. It's Hashem is the source of all that. In other words, you can plug into what's here, and everything that's here you can get, or you can go to the source. And the source gave it all over. So once you say, I'm doing it for Hashem, you're up here now. And all of a sudden Hashem says, then you have unlimited amounts that you can accomplish. And that's what Yaakov was trying to tell them. That you may have your own, I hope you'll achieve your own purpose in life. But you can even achieve beyond what your own purpose in life. And that's what we call, as we've been saying all about, is called superhuman. In the God place, all blessings are available. That's what he's saying. You won't just be Yehuda the lion anymore. You'll be Benjamin the wolf also. You have all these different things. And that's what the flag is coming to teach us. So, now, you're coming to Shavuos now. So now, hopefully, we have a little better understanding of Shavuos. It's not just as people looking at the city feel and say, you're a bunch of 40,000 black-hatted, blonde-coated Orthodox Jews who don't have anything unique to themselves. The fact with Bidafka reading Shmos, because a lot of people are afraid, afraid. Shvuas means God's giving us the Torah. He's compelling me to be like everybody else. Torah is so, so, so conforming, so constricting. I'll never have any freedom by accepting a Torah lifestyle. But that's the wrong attitude. That's why Shem Bidafka talks so much about the flags. Jews wanted this. When the non-Jews, when the non-Jews say, you know, your God has left you. Do you know? Now come and join us. You'll be executive vice presidents. Women, you'll climb the corporate ladder. Men, you'll have children, great hockey players. You'll have wealth. You'll have islands. You'll, you'll go on vacations, amazing places. Just come and give it up. The Jew says, can you give me purpose of life the way Torah can give me purpose of life? Can you give me real intrinsic knowledge of self and knowledge of what I'm meant to do and accomplish my real goals in life you don't have to make a nickel in life you're much happier than the person who's accomplishing all those um, outside goals in life that's how the Jews responded to that and that's how you have to look at Shavuos and to notice it's, it's the happiest holiday of all Pesach's amazing without freedom you can't even begin to make any choices Sukkot, you can reflect back on the good choices that you made and enjoy the spiritual bounty you've accrued from all those decisions. But that moment of realizing how fortunate and privileged you are to be able to have a unique purpose that won't even be limited by your uniqueness, but can transcend to the point you go beyond all barriers, without any barriers, that only comes because God gave us a Torah and will only happen if we learn that Torah. And that gives a lot more flavor to your cheesecake. Right? So and that's why that's why we stay up all night and learn Torah. Because what's the, what's the way to celebrate? If the celebration is Torah is the key to the knowledge of self. So what's the holiday without learning Torah? What kind of holiday is it? Just go to shul, hear the Ten Commandments, and go home and eat cheesecake. Then then you're a goy, you're a goy in Jewish clothes with Jewish Jewish accoutrements. You're no different than a goy. But he said, I'm going to learn Torah. I'm going to know what non-Jewish holiday has them studying their Bible for five hours on Christmas or on, or on Easter or any of their holy days. They read Bible for five hours. Because, they, because there's nothing to it, really. They know that. But when you're learning Torah, it, it, it's, it's electrifying your neshama. You're walking out as a different person. Right? That's, wow. I, my real happiness is going to come from Shavuos, realizing that that's what it is. And then, of course, after Shavuos, the goal is to keep learning. That's what most people who are not happy in life, most Jews are not happy, 
It's because they're not learning Torah, the kind of Torah that tells you who you are. That's why they're not happy. And Hashem says, I want you to be happy. And Mir Hashem, Hashem should give us that simcha to accept the Torah with joy and to have this happiness that the Torah brings us. Okay, now if any comments and questions, those who have to leave can leave. Remember, there's no class next Tuesday after telling you how important learning Torah is. Still, it just technical, it just doesn't work. It's uh, the day after Shavuos, the day before my daughter's wedding. It's just, I do have a family. I have other mitzvahs I have to do from time to time. So, yeah. Okay, question. How, how come the Orthodox didn't create an army, an army of Hashem, to fight our enemies and call it an army because we will win this way? They did, but then people, uh, you know, the, uh, an army only works if there's soldiers willing to follow the generals. Like, but you know, all so if the soldiers don't want to follow the generals, you don't have an army. Why? Because nobody, it's cannot, it's, the army can be in New York. It doesn't matter. You have to have soldiers. You have to have soldiers who are willing to listen. Soldiers there. Like all these people it's, that it's are on the a, internet you know, meeting. Going, uh, going there alone isn't enough. 